0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today's message is taken from our first reading from the 17th chapter of Acts with an emphasis on these words. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. In 2006, noted professor and evolutionary biologist Dr. Richard Dawkins published his now infamous critique of organized religion entitled The God Delusion. In the course of 10 chapters across 464 pages, Dr. Hawkins makes an array of controversial claims aimed principally at the core of not just the Christian faith, but of all world religions, the existence of and humanity's relations to what he calls a divine superterrestrial being or beings. Such a notion, argues Dawkins, is not only absurd, but dangerous postulating that man's adherence to religion contributes to the propagation of such things as fanaticism, bigotry, and war, he then goes on to state that we do not need celestial moral directives in order to behave morally. Constricting morality to a singular culturally appropriated directive, he writes, hinders humanity's capacity to evolve beyond antiquated moral tradition." As such, he dismisses the very idea of God as a holy, unnecessary superstition. Now, no doubt this brief academic synopsis of Dawkins' work is enough to probably incense more than a few of you, and perhaps the gears are already turning in your mind, poking holes in his argument, and considering how you yourself might argue and refute them. However, rather than waste our brief time This morning, futilely dismantling an argument as old as religion itself, I want to draw your attention today to two central presuppositions that Dawkins makes and why these presuppositions do not adequately address what it is that the Orthodox Christian Church confesses about our God. First, Dawkins' thesis is based on the idea that the function of God is merely moral. This is to say that God is an invention of man to provide a mutually agreed-on virtue ethic. Now, to this, the Christian church responds that while, yes, God certainly does provide clear rules for the life and conduct of man in the Holy Scriptures, this is not his primary function. We'll come to that more later. But secondly, Dawkins also mischaracterizes the very nature of God as being wholly hidden and unknowable to our mortal reckoning. And therefore, he hypothesizes that based on this evidence, or lack thereof, that God simply must not exist. Here, too, the church readily admits that there are elements of God's nature which are hidden from us. We cannot know everything about God because we are but human. But that both the natural world and the means of grace, the gifts that he gives his church, do indeed attest to his existence. God is not wholly hidden or mysterious, but he is revealed and knowable in those ways which he has chosen and gives to us. So the problem then is not that there is no evidence for God, as Dawkins suggests in his book, but rather that he is not satisfied with that evidence, and that is a fine distinction. He presents as objective reality what is a deeply subjective argument. As such, the problem then plaguing the Christian faith, distinct from all other world religions, is not... A God delusion, but rather a God confusion. For you see, even 2,000 years after Jesus walked the face of the earth in his flesh and blood, the church still doesn't always know what to make of him. We're not clear and unified all across the church, Catholic, universal, in our confession. So, This leads people like Dawkins to get an incomplete or a misleading picture of what the Bible actually says about God, and so academics uh, like him have often dismissed its teaching out of hand. Uh, Just think for a moment of all of the bad or misleading teaching that goes about today about Jesus in particular and the Godhead at large. As a result of these kind of teachings, people who hear these arguments tend to go in one of two ways. Either, like Dawkins, they'll eschew religion altogether, or more often, they get lumped into this kind of 21st century movement of spiritual, but not religious. This movement provides many questions about God. Who or what is He? How do we know He exists? What, if anything, is His relation to this world But the problem with it is is that it does not offer up any real or satisfactory answers. Their idea of God is, by nature, wishy-washy, fickle, and transient. Worship Him however you are comfortable, in a way that conforms to your worldview. Just make sure that you pay Him the adequate lip service, just in case it turns out that He actually exists. This, dear friends, is a sad and confused way to understand God. With this being the way that modernity views him, I can actually understand where academics like Dawkins are coming from when they surmise that he does not exist. And yet, as the old saying goes, there is nothing new under the sun. Dawkins and his arguments are not a 21st century invention. In fact, if you notice from our first reading from the book of Acts, St. Paul found himself in the middle of a very similar debate when he set foot in the city of Athens. To say that the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day was confused on the subject of religion would be a bit of an understatement. For Greece and Rome both had their respective pantheons, which bore many similarities, as you might well know. You might consider them the marvel and DC universes of their day. They contained many familiar figures like Zeus and Jupiter, Poseidon and Neptune, Ares, Mars, etc. But in addition to this, the imperial cult, uh, which had taken root in Rome over the last hundred or so years before Jesus and Paul, uh, they had begun calling Caesar, the, the leader of Rome, divus or divine, a demigod. It all kind of depended on who you were reading or listening to. But then there were also several surviving pagan traditions around Greece which still held sway in the city of Athens, worshipping anything from the sun to the sea to sacred animals. Sophists, who we heard about in our reading, they dedicated themselves religiously to the pursuit of wisdom. The Stoics, meanwhile, believed that the divine manifests itself in man through acts of physical discipline. The cynics promoted extreme asceticism and were the basis for the monastery that Martin Luther found himself a part of some 1,500 years later. Oh, and as we read, there was at least one Jewish synagogue in Athens that we know about. With all this, are you confused yet? Yeah, I know I was and had to actually make a chart in my office of how many different things were talked about as I researched this sermon You see, all of these schools of thought had a belief and platform in the city of Athens. It was kind of this great melting pot, and that platform that I spoke of is called the Oropagus, literally translated meaning the Hill of Ares, the god of war, as if that's not foreboding enough. This was where the city council would meet, Um, academics and philosophers would gather with their students to debate and lecture, and Luke records that. As a result of this ongoing debate, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You or I might call it navel-gazing, but to each their own. It was kind of their national pastime. In our reading, Paul was summoned to the Areopagus, because in this city of perpetual confusion, they found his teaching about the Jewish Messiah and the resurrection of the dead confusing. Like Dr. Dawkins, no doubt there were many who called into question how a humble carpenter could be put to death on a cross only to rise triumphant three days later from the grave and now live and reign as the true Lord and God of the heavens and the earth. Moreover, they certainly wanted to know what distinguished this supposed true God from the glut of false gods which were constantly on display in their city. In answer to this, St. Paul arrives at the Eropagus, and he gives one of the most eloquent and moving expositions of the nature and work of God that has ever been recorded in all of the Christian church. Here again, when he says, Men of Athens... as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off from each of us. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now friends, as we just did with Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, let's now also summarize St. Paul's thesis, as it were. First, Paul says that God is one that he alone is the creator of all things, and that he is not bound to specific temples, regions, or nations, and also that unlike the myriad gods that the Athenians were used to, he desires not the blood sacrifices of man or beast, but only that all people should know him and come to him. Secondly, Paul states that God's work is not an invention of man, like philosophy or rhetoric, graven images, or other idols that they were so used to. But rather, his work is to reveal himself to man and so inspire in him repentance leading to salvation. And therefore, thirdly and most importantly, that God is not so distant, not so mysterious, that man must determine for himself how to come to him, but rather that he is always close by that he is readily available and understandable through natural means which appear ordinary to us, and yet through his inner working convey the blessings and benefits of the divine for all of humanity to plainly see and hear and taste. As a token of this, he concludes, God comes not barking thunder and lightning from the top of Mount Olympus, but rather in flesh and blood like yours and mine to suffer humiliation and death for man's transgressions. And in rising again, win for him everlasting life. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, all of this is to say that you do not worship an unknown God, but a known God. You do not worship a God who demands blood sacrifice in order to come to him. You worship a God who shed his own blood to come to you. You do not serve a God who demands of you, make yourself righteous and work hard to ascend up to my kingdom. You worship a God who invites you to be made righteous in the waters of baptism, even as his kingdom descends to you through water and word, through bread and wine. Yours is a living, breathing, walking, talking God, a God with a face. The sophists, the poets, and yes, Even the biologists and the academics, they might spend their days using God's good gifts of wisdom, the arts, the sciences, to try and explain him away, but they will proffer nothing for their efforts. For as that same apostle Paul writes, we walk by faith and not by sight. We receive God truly, not by our effort and merit, but by his grace and mercy. In these ways and by these means, we come to know Him who makes foolish all the wisdom of man and casts down every idol from their thrones. Rejoice, then, that such a God as this has called you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and made you His children. And furthermore, He invites you to come to Him where He is ready and eager to be found, that you... O saints of the Lord, may find eternal life in him. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds, in this same Christ Jesus, unto life everlasting. Amen.